Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, set us at peace, give us uh, clarity of thought so that we might partake of your living word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is, am I coming through the mic? I just wanted to check. Okay, good. There is an aspect to the human condition where uh, it's a universal thing. I could, I could pick on my children, for instance, at this moment, and when we would try to wake them up when they've committed to doing something and they don't want to wake up, but the human condition is one where often we'll, we'll make these commitments, we'll, we'll make these promises, we'll, we'll say, hey, we'll do that, and then when the time comes, when it finally comes time for us to carry that out, we grumble, we groan. We put up reasons why we no longer can. And when we approach this passage at this moment, uh, we're still in verses that we've already covered, but also continuing on to new verses. We've had a Moses that was called twice by name. Moses, Moses, who, who responded to God, Here I am, Lord. And yet, what, Lord's, what the Lord is calling him to Moses is not ready to do. It's not that Moses wasn't always ready, didn't have a time where he was ready to do that which the Lord is now calling him. Moses actually in his 40s had wanted to do this very thing, to, to be an instrument of God that would free, help free from bondage of slavery the Hebrew people. And yet, God did not want to use that Moses because that Moses believed that in his own strength that he had enough gumption, enough bravado, enough strength in himself that he could carry it through. Here now is an 80-year-old man who does not believe that he has enough gumption, he has enough strength, he has enough wherewithal to carry that through. And he's right. And that's why God wants to use him. Because the point in picking Moses at this time of his life, rather than 40 years earlier, is to show that the power of God in him. It's to show that remarkable power. You know, here is a Moses that writes in Psalm 90, verse 10, about how at the age of 70, at the age of 80, he probably, by the way, writes this, that psalm, Psalm 90, shortly after this encounter, that a man is, is kind of considering the end of their days, that the end of the road, if they've made it to that point. And yet, here is God saying, there is still great things for you to do. And this idea is not a rarity. It's not something foreign to the church. Last year, we actually opened up the year by looking at one of the books of 1 Timothy, one of the pastoral epistles of Paul. And in chapter 5 there, it talks about the order of widows. How 
the church was to actually employ and actually to bring in these widows who, who were not being provided for, not being cared for by their own families, and basically enlist them as a prayer warrior for the church. Think of that. The New Testament church thinks of, of, of the fact that you, you really want to, to find out who's important to ministry. Don't forget the widows. Don't, don't infor- their prayer life, their prayers are essential to the church body. You'll, you'll often find this reality in ministry where um, people will tend to think that later on in life they don't have as much to offer anymore. They don't have as much to, to be able to provide. The longer that we live, the, the, less, the more and more aware we become of the things that we can no longer do. I no longer have, especially in my left knee, a knee that should ski. I shouldn't ski mountains anymore. I'm very aware of that knee. It, it hurts quite a bit. I, I always worry, at some point I'm going to need a knee surgery for that uh, knee. You, you start to, to grow mindful of the things you can't do, and sometimes in that resistance we forget that that is often the time in which God will have us do the most profound things for the Lord. There's so many illustrations I could pull from here, and I'm, I'm actually going to pull from a few. I remember a man who had lost his wife in his 80s, early 80s. And he was a fellow seminary student of mine at RTS. And he was such a ministry to me it was such a ministry to us all. None of us were busy looking at this man going, why is this 80-year-old man uh, in the MDiv program? Why is he committing four years to study these sorts of things? We knew why he was there. He still had life, and he was such a blessing. He was a blessing to, to our professors, the ministers who taught us. He was a blessing to the students. He, he was a blessing to me, because I even... Joining seminary in my, my mid-30s kind of thought, maybe I'm too old to be in seminary. He, he was a ministry to all of us. We often have the wrong mindset when it comes to age. You know, I, I'm someone that I hear people share the gospel a lot. I hear pastors share it. I hear, I hear sermons. I hear podcasts. I hear uh, people in this congregation that... And speaking with one another. This year, I have heard that have one moment that stands out above all the other moments as the most precious moment of somebody articulating the gospel. And I'm I'm sorry to put this person on the spot, but it was you, Kurt, downstairs. Kurt has cancer. At the end of the month, he'll be removing a kidney, a lymph node. And Kurt came up to me downstairs during the fellowship hour and just articulated to me the fact that he knows he's done some terrible things in his life. He knows that he has sinned greatly at times in his life. And yet, He knows 
that he has an even greater Savior. And regardless of what happens, and of course we continue to, to lift up curtain prayer, regardless of what happens in this, he has peace in Christ. He has peace in the Lord. And he knows that if this might be the end, this might be what Moses was talking about in, in Psalm 90, verse 10, that, that there is a measuring to days that, that, that happens that still the Lord has been good to him and the Lord will save him. The Lord will redeem him in an ultimate sense. And that's been the best sharing of the gospel I genuinely have had in a long time. And I thank you for that. And our temptation is to think as we get to the end of life, we can't be a ministry unto others, and yet the lifeblood of the church is often the great sacrifice. And, the, and, and even in how Patrick was finishing the Sunday school lesson downstairs, he was talking about the last words people say. And it's often in those last words we find powerful words that we can carry with us for all eternity. And so while Moses had begun this passage by clearly responding to the Lord, here I am, we have this reality now here. Before Pharaoh turns down Moses ten times, there are five imperatives, five, that's a fancy word for commands, that God gives to Moses, that Moses essentially turns down before he goes to Egypt. Because... Well, we can um, do remarkable things all throughout our life for the glory of God. We can be a stubborn people. We can be a stubborn people who have been set in our ways, and, and not every time we're set in our ways are we set in our ways for a godly reason. Moses here he is set in his ways, and his being set in his ways puts him against the ministry of God. And yet God is patient with him. And God is uh, kind to him. And God is ultimately going to walk along Moses at this very beginning of his walk with him patiently so that he goes out in faith with Moses together. And again, as we pointed out, this is a Moses who knows very little about God. And he's actually going to go to a Hebrew people that know very little about God. There is this reality in this passage that is important for us to realize. We can, we can sort of look at this ver these verses of Moses, for instance, instance, asking the name of the Lord, that he has the name of the Lord so that um, he might share that with the Hebrews. It is almost certain. It is almost certain because of something Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 5. I believe it's in the early verses, like verse 3. But... Also, Moses' question here, that this was a time period 
for the, the nation of Israel that they forgot the name of the Lord. Now, the name of the Lord had been given to the patriarchs. We can find it, for instance, uh, Abraham will tell the king of Sodom in Genesis chapter 14, but there's other chapters, the name of the Lord. But the name of the Lord had been lost. The name of the Lord had not been uh, preserved by the people. Which is a remarkable thing when you think about it. When you think of how many times, for instance, the scriptures tell us to call upon the name of the Lord. And the reason why I draw this out is this has happened two times in Israel's history. This has happened from the time period between Joseph and Moses where the people forgot the name of the Lord. I, I was even reading Jewish commentaries on this. And, and they forgot the name of the Lord. And then Moses, God sends Moses. God comes in his advent, sending Moses in order to tell all of Israel his name. So that they might worship the name of the Lord. And then it happens one other time. We actually, even Jewish commentaries will point this out, are fairly certain that from the time period of Moses to the destruction of the first temple, Jews would call on the name of the Lord. While we often think of kind of modern Judaism that derives itself from Pharisaical practices, uh, we think of modern Jews would not say the name of the Lord. That practice only begins after the destruction of the first temple. Which is a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing because when we appreciate this fact, we can appreciate the fact that in Jesus' coming, the name above all names, that blessed Redeemer, He is once again coming to the nation that has forgotten the name of the Lord. And He's saying, not only do you have a name, not only do you have a burning bush, you have my body. Called upon the name of the Lord. This is Moses' ministry. In one sense, this is the ministry of any evangelist, of us sharing the gospel. We, we are to be a people who share the good news of the name of the Lord with others. For people to call on that name. For people to be freed from slavery through that name. So what I want you to appreciate is the, uh, what is the fact that this is a people who do not know God. You know, there is this scene in Acts chapter 17. It's this epic scene. I, I hope one day to be, be able to figure out a way to get to Athens and go to Mars Hill where Paul preaches to the Athenians. And he preaches, um, he's inspired to preach because there is this uh, shrine to the unknown God. And it's actually helpful to consider Moses' ministry in light of, I think, that passage. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of paraphrase Acts chapter 17 and and a way that Moses could have preached a sermon 
not saying he preached this sermon, but could have preached a sermon to the Hebrews that did not know the name of the Lord. In that, that, that has parallels. It could have gone like this. It would not have been out of place. People of Goshen, Hebrews, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an ark with an inscription identifying the body within it as Joseph, who was once a prince of Egypt. And that Joseph served a God who is now unknown to us. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, the kinds that cover Egypt. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he has made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed time and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his children. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill, or even a pharaoh in Egypt. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge this nation with justice by the man he has appointed. Because out of Egypt he will call his son. And why I belabor this point is because evangelism is simple. But we, like stubborn Moses, we act like it's complicated. We make it so complicated that we don't know. uh, We convince ourselves we shouldn't do it. Kind of like the young kid who doesn't want to wake up for something that they're supposed to be committed to. And evangelism is simple because this, it's Sharing with people the good news of the name of the Lord and that the good news of the name of the Lord causing them to worship. If, and this passage makes this clear, there are a lot of people who are convinced they are Christians. They are convinced that they are true believers and yet their heart is not set apart in worship to the Lord. And This passage, this coming of the Lord, sorry, I'm going to grab some water here. This coming of the Lord, here in Genesis, I mean Exodus chapter 3, it knows nothing of someone being saved by God who does not desire to worship God. It knows nothing of someone being saved by God who does not want to worship God. I remember the my wife and I were able to, to hear uh, preached what ended up being the fourth or fifth to last sermon R.C. Sproul ever preached. And it was just a, a powerful sermon. And in that sermon, he said that he thought the biggest threat that was 
uh, in the American church was a carnal kind of Christianity, a Christianity where, you know, you say that prepared prayer, that little scripted prayer that, that often preachers like to, to convince people, and there's nothing wrong with the wording of that prayer, but you say that scripted prayer, and all of a sudden, oh, you're saved. And people can go, great, great. Well, and, and sort of like a, a brothel-esque kind of transaction, they go, oh, great, that was nice. Say a few nice platitudes towards God, and they go on their merry way. And they go on their merry way. And they, they don't have a life that is transformed by a life that worships God, not on just on Sunday, but, but the Lord upholds the Lord's Day as, as special and unique. But, but I'm talking about in the full being of our life. I've seen our whole life as worship. They'll just go on their merry way. They'll continue to do the things they want to do. Uh, to, to illustrate this, and I'm going to frustrate a few people here today by saying this, but I felt betrayed this week. I felt robbed. I went to the movie theater, and I, and I watched that popular Jesus movie that's out there, and, and it's, it's designed to give you all the feels. It's designed to give you all the feels. Um... And, and I do believe that in that movie that Chuck Smith, for instance, I think he was a brother in the Lord. I think his encouragement of people to, to read the scriptures. I, I know people personally who were saved uh, from uh, through that his ministry. I even think Greg Laurie has, has hopefully done some good things for the Lord. But there was this third individual in the movie, and I had no idea who this individual was going into the movie. And, and then after the movie, I read up on this individual, and I just felt betrayed by the movie. Because this other individual, and I'm not giving his name intentionally, not because I don't know it. He's depicted as, by, by the man who, who's in the movie Chosen, he's depicted as this old, old hippie soul who really opens Chuck Smith's eyes. And, and he opens his eyes into a new way to do ministry, and, and he really helps usher in this, this Jesus revolution, this, this Jesus movement. What the movie did not point out is the fact that actually the man portrayed as a 40-year-old old soul was actually in his young 20s. But also, Chuck Smith actually had to remove him from the eldership, he had to actually put him under discipline because he gave himself up to gross, debase, profound sexual sins that are not permitted at all. He did not honor his marriage vows both times he was married. He ended up divorcing his wife in the movie. And he ended up Dying as a byproduct of the sexual sin he perversely partook in from AIDS in the 80s. And I was betrayed by the movie because the movie upholds this person as 
He figured it out, and he helped all of us. No. The life that knows the name of the Lord, but is not transformed in worshiping the Lord, in word, thought, and deed, is not a transformed life at all. It's a false gospel. It's a false idea. Everything in this chapter that God is doing, He is doing in order that His people might worship Him faithfully. And we have to be very careful as Christians not to fall prey to the counterfeits, to the half-measure gospels, to the carnal gospels that say, oh, but he had a nice idea. Let's not look at those carnal sins of his. No. The life saved by the name of the Lord is transformed by the name of the Lord and it causes a lifetime of desiring to worship the Lord. We need to have wisdom. <sighs> Let me catch up to the notes. No problem. <laughs> Sermon broke out there. Another thing I'd like us to see in this text. God sends Moses to Pharaoh with a simple, easy-to-follow request. Sometimes we, we know the end from the beginning of this story because it's so popularized. We know it well. We, we miss it. We miss the message that Moses is first to go to Pharaoh with. Moses was supposed to present the word of the Lord in the community of the Hebrews, and the elders would essentially emerge from that community being faithful to that word. They would hear the word of the God, and they'd be faithful to the word of God. They were men. Elders always in the Bible are men, but you've got to point that out in our day and age. Uh, there were men, and they were men who responded to the Word of God and were trying to abide faithfully to the Word of God. By the way, that's still a good starting definition, starting point for the idea of elder. The Bible knows nothing of elders that will not abide and try to live out their life according to the Word of God. Not going to mention that movie again. This would have been a small amount of people. And he's only asking for a three days journey. Basically like a pastor's conference in one sense. A three-day journey. You, you couldn't get to Sinai in three days. You couldn't get to the Red Sea in three days. You couldn't get anywhere profound in three days. Three days journey so that these elders might worship the Lord. It's a minor request. We're supposed to notice it's a minor request. And Pharaoh so hates the people of God, even this minor request he refuses. And so, God will be shown to be wise, to have good reason to make war against this superpower. And by the way, if I, if I could preach at the UN... 
nations in our own day, this continent and all the other continents, it seems, would be wise to know that God does not take kindly to the worship of Him being restricted by the worldly powers that be. And so we're supposed to see this in this reality. God will hold such leaders to account. And so Pharaoh will not release these elders. He will not see them through. He will show his hardened heart through not being able to honor a simple request. Even in the ten times he will deny Moses. Even in that, once he finally lets them go, he will, he will second-guess himself and he will come for them. There's something else to see, and I believe it's in verses 19 and 20 of the passage. And it's this. God is making clear to Moses that he's not going to be enough. Actually, in this passage, uh, there's this kind of saying of the Lord and the arm of the Lord and the strength of the Lord and and how the, the arm will free, set free. And there, there is an irony in this, in the fact that if we had walked up to uh, an Egyptian or even a Hebrew at this time of day and said, uh, this age, and we had said, who is the arm of the Lord? They would have said, oh, we know who the arm of the Lord is. That's, that's another name for Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh's the arm of the Lord. And there might have also been a temptation for people as Moses, as this conflict begins, for people to think, oh, maybe Moses is the arm of the Lord. He seems to be the one with great power. He seems to be the arm of the Lord. But God actually is making clear that Moses, I'm the arm of the Lord. I am the Lord. My arm will be the arm that delivers you. It's not going to be your strength. I know you're worried about not being able to do the task that is set before you. Don't worry, Moses. In one sense, you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to do it. But don't worry. After you fail, I will extend my arm of judgment. And finally, people will know the arm of the Lord. And there is amazing reality about this arm of the Lord. Still the Jewish people still find their identity in this moment. In the strength of the arm of the Lord they they still hold to this reality that happened 3,500 years ago as uh, something that they can place their trust in and, and, and God coming for them. And so that is at play here in this passage. And there's one other thing I'd like to talk about before we close, and that is the plundering of the Egyptians. The passage actually closes in the plundering of the Egyptians. The the Bible offers a wonderful 
ethic towards slavery that most people aren't aware of. They hear the word slave, and they put modern ideas on it. But even Moses, in one of his final sermons to the Hebrews, will tell people, he'll preach in Deuteronomy 15, 13, that when God frees slaves, he never wants them to go empty-handed. Never are to leave empty-handed. Which is materially shown in this passage. God will free the slaves, and it's clear from these verses that as the slaves are freed, they will be able to go up, and this, this will be fulfilled, go up to the Egyptians, and they can ask for their gold and silver, and these things will be given unto them. And people think in a modern sense, oh, great, reparations, or something like that. There'd be a whole host of pastors that would love to preach that sermon. That's her, that dog won't hunt, though. Um, you know what those things end up going towards? The worship of God. They end up being things that build the tabernacle of the Lord. They end up becoming the gold and silver and the refinements that are in the tabernacle. Some of those will also be transferred into Solomon's holy temple, the temple of the Lord. See, there's something else at play here in this idea that we close with. The Lord frees us from the slavery, from the bondage from, of sin. The Lord saves us in His emancipating power. And He blesses us. He doesn't want us to leave this life empty-handed. And, and that is seen in part by by worshiping the Lord richly, but also having a new understanding of our earthly possessions, of, of the things that we sacrifice unto the Lord. All of these things are the Lord. On my finger, on a lot of our fingers, I'm sure, are gold rings. That's asphalt in the new heavens and new earth. I'm going to walk over this ring someday. I'm gonna, it's going to be under my feet. God repurposes this thing because all things will ultimately, the earth and the fullness therein is the Lord's. And these things will be used by God in order that we might worship Him in spirit and truth. And I mention that in part because we're about to have a, a, a vote here on a congregational meeting, and I will say the budget this year is really high. And we lost a lot of money in the stock market last year. And all of these things. The financials are scary. <laughs> they, they are. They seem scary. And yet, what are we trying to do with that? What are we trying to do with those funds? We're trying to actually enhance the teaching spaces here. We're trying to actually, hopefully, uh, improve our ability to teach the next generation here at this church, in this community, how to love and serve the Lord and how to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because ultimately all these things, all, all these bank accounts, all this stuff that we have is the Lord's. And it's to be purposed into the worship of Him. It's not that He doesn't want us to, to be blessed by having great things, wonderful things. He does that all throughout His Scripture. He's, he delights in us having great things and, and great pleasures. He's, he loves to spoil His people in, in, in certain realities, in certain ways. But 
the wealth of this world, the things of this world are ultimately all going to be refined by the refining fire that is our Lord. And at one day, one day sooner than the last, the whole earth will be purposed towards the worship of the Lord. This is his mission. This is why he has given us his name that is above all names. A name that humanity has long forgotten several times. A name that we need to be sharing because most people don't know this name. Most people haven't been transformed into faithful worshipers through this name. Most people just think, oh, maybe if I say a prayer as an American one time, I'm a, I'm a Christian now. And they don't understand that, that the God who desires you has come for you in order that you might delight to worship him in spirit and in truth, faithfully, in all that you have and all that you do and all that you say. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, you came for us so that we would not succumb to the counterfeits. You came to us so that we might be bold in our desire to invest in you and the things that you delight in and the things that bring you praise and worship. And so help us to have courage, Lord. Help that stubborn 80-year-old in all of us that Moses has in this passage that says, I can't, I won't, I'm not equipped, I'm not able, I'm not strong enough. Help that to die. Help that to be put to death through the power of the Spirit so that we might share the name above every name without reservation, without fear, without any um, desire for our own recognition, but only so that more people might come to know the saving name of the Lord and have their life changed and reverent worshiped Him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we take a moment quietly and privately to confess our sins before the Lord. <clears throat>